Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who has no idea how to make a podcast. I'm Paul Stetzel. Last time, I told you about the taking of Fort Ticonderoga and the minor role in that event played by my sixth great-grandfather, Ephraim Blackmer. While telling you the story, I mentioned something that I want to circle back to because it was really important and I didn't give it nearly enough attention because, well, it, it wasn't really the point of that particular podcast. So, to make up for it, I'm going to make the incompetence of 18th century British government the point of this week's episode, even if I do bury it once again with a bunch of other things. Alongside this podcast episode is another recording, which is just me reading the Proclamation of 1763. I recommend you listen to it, though not if you're driving or operating heavy machinery. It's just that I'll be talking a bit about the proclamation today, and most people have never actually paid any attention to it, so I thought I might include a a fun bonus episode just in case you're interested. I know, fun bonus episode sounds fun, but yeah, um, it, it isn't. But I will let you know that if you're going to seriously study the American Revolution, this document, or the French and Indian War, is usually a good place to start. The proclamation is the first major document since the the treaty that ended the French and Indian War to be of real relevance to the revolution, and it's a great example of a couple of themes that I want you to keep an eye on if you have indeed taken on the extremely cool and sexy topic of the American Revolution. The themes are these. First, when talking about the American Revolution, I want you to always view the British as smarmy, arrogant, and condescending. I know, I know, historians aren't supposed to take sides, but we totally take sides. And the objective historian misses out on so much context. Not only that, but there's really no such thing as an objective historian once you get past empirical data sets. And so, historians who wish to present themselves as objective not only aren't being honest, but they pass up obvious things. Here, the obvious thing is that it doesn't matter if the British had sound reasoning for what they did in the years before the Revolution. Um, Often they did not. It doesn't matter if the British were right or wrong. It doesn't matter if the American colonists would have been better off if they had just stayed silent. In later episodes, I'm positive I'll talk about the Declaration of Independence or Patrick Henry's speech on liberty, and you'll plainly see that what mattered here, what matters in politics still today, is how the British government made colonists feel. And I gotta tell you, smarmy condescension, that makes Americans mad. The second theme is incompetence. On this, the American colonists had a distinct advantage, since they faced an opponent who was somehow, bafflingly, worse at managing this crisis than the Continental Congress was. The British government was making decisions based on a cultural and political landscape so far removed from London that they couldn't help but to get this wrong. If you're from New York State, or Illinois, or the rural parts of California, and you've ever looked on with astonishment at the big city politics of New York City, Chicago, or the coast, respectively, you know how clueless politicians often attempt to create square legislation that will apply to round populations. The same thing would later happen with the military campaign in the Revolution. Indeed, it already had during the French and Indian War, and in several other campaigns before that. By 1763, the colonists had learned that the British weren't just very good at fighting or governing in America. Here's the background. Earlier in the year 1763, 
the Seven Years' War came to an end with the Treaty of Paris. Here in good old America, we usually refer to this war as the French and Indian War. Our British friends can't use that phrase because it just isn't specific enough. If they were to talk about a war involving the French or the Indians, it really doesn't narrow it down too much. The treaty that ended that war, signed in Paris, almost entirely brought an end to French colonialism in North America, and the British picked up a lot of new territories. The proclamation dealt with what to do with those new territories, and how the British went about this was actually pretty tone-deaf in terms of both the colonists and the Native Americans. Now, before I go on, let me just preface this by saying that I'm actually quite the Anglophile, which makes all of this just so much more delightful. And I also have a deep respect for the many Native American cultures. Uh, in fact, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people talk about Native Americans like they were a single group of people. They weren't. There were quite a few of them, which makes all of this just so much more tragic. So before you get your dander up, no, what you're about to hear isn't being too hard on the British, nor is it dismissive of Native Americans. If we are to understand how this fed into the whole concept of American independence, then what matters here is what the colonists were up to. Up until this point, the British government had done a really fantastic job of letting the colonists run their colonies by themselves, giving them freedom so long as they remained loyal subjects, and happily letting them develop as they saw fit. And when needed, the British stood shoulder to shoulder with their American counterparts, defending them as brothers and as equals. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not a thing that happened. That was the British perspective, a perspective held by people who typically knew nothing about life in America and held by modern academics who never have anything nice to say about Americans. To be fair to the British, there was for about 40 years up to the proclamation a rather unofficial policy, which uh, Edmund Burke, I think it was, uh, it was called uh, salutary neglect. It was a policy by which the British let the colonists do their thing out of some early prototype version of Reagan-like laissez-faire policy, which is fine, since economically it worked out very well. Except that while the British sat around making sure the colonists got good and used to self-rule, they also typically sat by while the colonists fought their own conflicts. Again, to be fair, the colonists couldn't send for help from England any time there was a Native American raid, since it would all be over with long before the government knew about it, so the colonists naturally defended themselves most of the time. But when the British did intervene to protect their settlers, from the American perspective, the intervention took the form of incompetence and nonsense. For example, the British military showed up just after the nick of time in Bacon's Rebellion in 1677. And when they showed up in the aftermath of the Glorious Revolution, the Redcoats came off as repressive and unwanted interlopers. Much later, in the War of Jenkins' Ear, the horrific war with the silly, silly name, the few actual British troops involved had a, let's say, a mixed record down south, to be charitable, and up north, they showed up after the New Englanders had won at the Siege of Lewisburg. Then, the British handed the fort back over like the New Englanders hadn't just fought and died for it. Even in the French and Indian War, which the British won, their early catastrophic defeat in the Ohio Valley, to quote the historian Douglas Edward Leach, quote, planted in the American mind a notion that redcoats were vulnerable to irregulars, meaning they were vulnerable to exactly the type of fighting the Americans specialized in. At no time, even when they were winning, did the British make themselves seem like the good guys? 
They looked down at the Americans with contempt, and they sang songs like Yankee Doodle Dandy, which is actually meant as an insult. And even way back then, if there's one way to ruffle an American's feathers, it's to look down on Americans. Do I sound bitter? Because the colonists certainly were. Before the proclamation, before the Stamp Act, or the tax on tea, the colonists were already keenly aware that they were looked down upon by their cousins back home. I want you to really keep that in mind if you listen to the recording of the proclamation. As you listen to it, imagine that you're a former military, MAGA hat-wearing coal miner with a mortgage to pay, and the proclamation is being read to you by an East Coast lefty hipster college professor who is terrified of misgendering Georges kids. If you can put yourself in those shoes, you'll easily understand how this came off to a lot of colonists. Now, onto the proclamation itself. You learned about this in high school. I'm sure you did. But you probably don't remember much about it since the history you learn in school is usually simplified to the point of absurdity and the effects of the proclamation aren't as easy to discuss in simplified form. So what does the proclamation actually say? The text itself is broken down into several parts and it's a great example of what we call burying the lead. Burying the lead is a term from the olden days of newspapers, which, for you young'uns, a newspaper was a disposable tablet with just a news app on it. And this is where you would write a news story where the really important part of the story is found 10 or 20 paragraphs in instead of right at the top. That means for uh, our purposes of understanding the American Revolution, much of the proclamation seems like wasted space, and I'm going to be focusing in on one particular section of the proclamation here. The proclamation talks about setting up boundaries for new colonies, one from the French, creating colonial legislatures, you stupid colonists can't be trusted to settle west of the mountains unless we say so, and creating courts of justice in America. Do you see what happened there? I buried the lead like a good journalist. And I'm not a betting man, but I'd wager a donut that you can figure out which of the different parts of the proclamation I'm going to focus in on. Let's talk for a minute about why this was problematic. I want to talk about the question of land, and I also want to talk about the Native Americans. The part about not settling west of the mountains wasn't really a big deal if you lived in England, but there were a few people here on this side of the Atlantic who saw this as a problem. First, there were the regular Joes, the average Jebediah Q public, who were interested in those lands for farming. Here's something important to consider. The population density of the, of the colonies, unless you lived in the frontier along the east side of the Appalachians, was upwards of 40 people per square mile. That's about as densely populated as the state of Kansas is today, and you may know there's a lot of open space in Kansas. You would think that the colonists wouldn't have a problem here, but you'd be thinking like a 21st century American, not an 18th century American. Like Doc Brown says to Marty McFly, you've got to start thinking four-dimensionally. Almost every person employed was employed in agriculture. At the first U.S. Census in 1790, about 97% of Americans lived in rural areas, and the rest lived in towns and cities. That's the exact opposite of how we're spread out today. Today, the average person lives on considerably less than an acre, but in the 18th century, a typical farm in New England might be upwards of 150 to 200 acres. Even if we assume that we have just one rural person per 20 acres, if you've got two and a half or three million Americans, that's still 60 million acres, or eight of the 13 colonies. And that's assuming that every bit of land 
arable or otherwise, was used, which we know it wasn't. A much smaller population in 1763 still required much more land than most people today would think. And it's not only the farmland being worked, there was also property distribution to consider. If you're an average American living today, and your parents pass their estate to you and your siblings, you could end up receiving no real estate, no land, and still feed yourself and your family since we live in a post-industrial world where you work a regular job and buy your food down at the Kroger or the Publix or, if you're very lucky, a Wegmans. In other words, we think the colonists lived in an endlessly productive, open-wide continent, but when the line was drawn at the Appalachians, Americans started to feel claustrophobic. For the typical Ezekiel every guy, it was assumed that new land would be acquired from the other group who was royally upset by the proclamation, big businessmen. In the 21st century, we talk about big oil, big pharma, big tech, etc., etc. But in 1763, it was big land. The Loyal Company, the Ohio Company of Virginia, and the Mississippi Company are the three best known, and the list of investors in these companies reads like a who's who of the American Revolution. These companies were involved in what's known as land speculation. This is where the company would acquire large tracts of land, often either unseen or with just a very cursory survey, and then they would sell that land off in farm-sized bits over the course of many years, making a profit in the long term. They were sort of like the IKEA of real estate development. They gave you almost everything you needed, but you did all the hard work. Because they very well knew how much land a typical American lived on, these companies were very eager to invest in land as early as the mid-18th century, before the start of the French and Indian War. Now, from their perspective, businesses expect potential problems when they invest. Maybe the land isn't as fertile as they thought it might be. Uh, maybe the settlers deal with raids by the natives. Maybe a drought or some other major natural disaster causes settlers to stay away. There are all sorts of things that might occur that would make the land less valuable and therefore endanger the company's profits. But one thing that didn't have to happen to their investment was some pencil-necked bureaucrats thousands of miles away drawing what they saw as an arbitrary line and with a stroke of a pen wiping out all their investments. That was a danger that should have been easily avoided, especially since a great many parcels of land had already been claimed by these different companies. One of the investors in land out west was a man from Virginia named George Washington. If you haven't heard of him, turn this off now because I can't help you. A little bit of historical trivia for you. Washington was actually one of the wealthiest men to ever be president. True, he married money. But he also had a lot of land, and in order to get more, he seemed perfectly willing to circumvent the proclamation since he didn't see it as a serious barrier to his business. In a letter he wrote to William Crawford, a Pennsylvania surveyor who sort of acted as Washington's land agent for years, he said this, quote, For I can never look upon that proclamation in any other light, but this I say between ourselves, than as a temporary expedient to quiet the minds of the Indians and must fall in a few years, especially when those Indians are consenting to our occupying the lands." Unquote. Interestingly, Washington's chief reason for not taking the proclamation seriously wasn't that it violated the rights of the colonists, though he undoubtedly held this opinion as well, but because he did not believe that the government believed its own reasoning for imposing it in the first place, and so he didn't think the government would actually continue to impose it. He was right. And there's a lesson there for modern politicians. If you don't believe in the laws you're passing, 
don't get all cancel culture when people ignore those laws. Speaking of Native Americans, the only people whose lifestyle often required more land than English colonists were the various Native American tribes. I want to share a few quick notes about the Native population because this is really very relevant to understanding the colonial perception of the proclamation. I got into this briefly in the story about William Blackmer, and the issue is sort of raising his head again here. It is difficult to calculate how many Native Americans there were at this point, but a rough estimate would suggest that there were about as many English colonists on this uh, on the east side of the proclamation line as there were Natives in the entirety of the continent to the west of it, including the 48 contiguous states as well as modern Canada and Alaska. According to the World Public Radio Program, there were about 4 million natives in the entire Western Hemisphere by the time the English showed up at Plymouth in 1620, as a result of unchecked epidemics brought on largely by the Spanish, and I don't see that the overall population had recovered very much, if at all, by 1763. This meant that there were shockingly few Native Americans, but their semi-nomadic lifestyle, especially further west, meant that they occupied an outsized area. They also displayed a great variety of cultures and attitudes, which gets lost in many oversimplified renderings of this story. There were some who realized that this disparity in population size was going to mean in the long run, but the process took so long, it was so drawn out, that many others, both natives and Europeans, couldn't see the disaster coming. And so many natives were, as Washington pointed out in his letter, very happy to sell the land, and the interference by London was simply not wanted by either side. If they could have foreseen the 19th century, they might have approached the issue differently, but we all know what hindsight is. We may find it difficult to imagine today, when we're supposed to place Christopher Columbus on the same level as Adolf Hitler, and people assume that every colonist went through an initiation rite when they had to desecrate an Indian burial ground as soon as they got off the boat. But that's because our version of American history is what we've learned in school, and I have to tell you that the simple fact that history is written by the victors doesn't mean what you think it means when the victors live in a self-destructive society like our own. The struggle between Native Americans and Europeans was spread out over centuries, and at no time did the British colonists all sit down in their evil, hollowed-out volcano supervillain lair and come up with plans to exterminate the natives unless they paid a ransom of one million dollars. We know how this turned out, but people living in the moment did not. And early on, the idea that the Europeans would win out in such a lopsided manner wasn't really a foregone conclusion. I want to mention all this because I think it's very important to understand that both the colonists and the Native Americans were working without the benefit of what we know. And Natives who did want to sell the land in the absence of our historical knowledge were also being put out by all of this. The proclamation wasn't saying that British colonists couldn't ever settle on the other side of the mountains. It made the decision to do so a matter for the king in parliament or his representatives. For modern Wokeskold students or college professors who might see this as a lost opportunity when the tide of European patriarchal tyranny could have been stemmed, sorry, no. The proclamation says that this land is clearly British based on the terms of the Treaty of Paris, and the British would decide what happened to it. It even lays out the terms on which Native Americans could sell what we think of uh, oftentimes as their land. So there's part of the proclamation that says the colonists couldn't buy land unless the Native tribes agreed to it in council and the king's representatives said it was okay. 
If you view that as the British government acknowledging some kind of Native American sovereignty, you're not really getting the big picture. While the proclamation is celebrated up in Canada as some kind of victory for First Nations tribes, it really wasn't the kind of protection that the Native Americans needed. That makes it the perfect specimen of bureaucracy. A faraway government with little knowledge of the situation on the ground issued an arbitrary rule that doesn't help either side involved in a potential conflict and in fact makes the situation worse in regards to the resentment felt by their own subjects. I should also point out that while we understand that the proclamation shouldn't be seen as shielding the Native Americans against the colonists, a great many colonists were pretty sensitive to the idea that their own government might be seen as siding with Native Americans against loyal but discontented British subjects. This is really important, and I want you to understand the proclamation in the correct context. What were the colonists dealing with at the precise moment the proclamation was formulated? Remember how I said that there were some Natives who were happy to sell their land and there were others who weren't? The American Indians were not, who were not willing to sell their land were obviously the ones foremost on colonists' minds. On 27th of October, 1763, after the proclamation was made, but before anyone in the New World likely knew about it, since the papers in America didn't publish news of the proclamation for at least another month, the government in Pennsylvania published in the local papers a new law prohibiting sales of guns or other weaponry to the Native Americans. You see, the situation with some of the pro-French natives was apparently not resolved by the Treaty of Paris, and while the colonists were no longer in immediate danger from the French, the Native Americans continued attacking the British and American colonists. The situation was not a new war like the French and Indian War had been, but it was violent enough that Pennsylvania felt they had to stem the flow of arms to the natives while they called out their militias. This is from the front page of the Pennsylvania Gazette, again, 27th October, 1763. Quote, Whereas several tribes of Indians, for some time past, have perfidiously made incursions within the frontiers of this province, and have penetrated many cruel and barbarous murders on the inhabitants thereof, yada, 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 it goes on with some legal boilerplate. Continuing on, that from and after the passing of this act, if any person or persons whatsoever shall, directly or indirectly, give to sell barter or exchange with any Indian or Indians whatsoever, any guns, gunpowder, shot, bullets, lead, or other warlike stores without license from the commander-in-chief of the king's forces in those parts, more yada yada yada. It then goes on to describe the punishment for violating this rule as a, a fine of 500 pounds sterling, which is a huge amount of money in those days, which was to be paid half to the government and half to the person who squealed on you, followed by 39 lashes and a full year in jail without possibility of parole. This means at this time the colonists were taking the situation with the Indians very seriously, and just about this time, this is publicized. Here along comes this proclamation granting the Indians some level of control uh, over the land that the colonists had thought was to be theirs. A similar situation was playing out in New Jersey. On 16th November, 1763, the new governor of New Jersey, William Franklin, son of Benjamin Franklin and later a devout loyalist, gave a speech to the General Assembly of his colony in which he complained that the Indians had begun fresh hostilities. He had called out some of the local militias, but was seriously concerned that even if he called out every militiaman in New Jersey, it wouldn't be enough because the Native Americans could pass in and out of any lands they chose like a T-Rex in a power outage. Kudos if you get the reference. Now, New Jersey was pretty far removed from the line drawn by the proclamation, and here is the legislature of that colony being told that a defensive war was a war lost before it began. To put it in perspective, 
the governor recommended the following in regards to the Indians. Listen carefully. Quote, But if we were to send parties of rangers into their country to cut off communications between their several places of residence, surprise them in their hunting and fishing, destroy their cornfields, bring off their women and children, and burn their habitations, we should, in a little time, be able to oblige them to accept whatever terms we might think proper to dictate. Unquote. Notice the repetition of the word there or them, emphasizing that the Indians had been doing all these things to the colonists. Governor Franklin was accusing the natives of all the sorts of things that modern anti-American academics accuse Europeans of doing more effectively. His speech goes on, for example, to mention murdering soldiers who had surrendered and butchering women and children. His point was that the colonists were going to have to fight the Native Americans like Native Americans, and in any and in ways that they knew that the British regulars couldn't or perhaps wouldn't. On a side note, this list of activities should, as I said in a previous recording, undermine this childish notion that social studies teachers might have given you that the Europeans were inherently more violent and cruel than anyone else on the planet. And by the way, I understand that this entire continent was at one point native land. Yes, I understand that this sounds to a lot of people like the colonists could dish it out, but they couldn't take it themselves. And yes, I firmly believe that what happened to the various Native American cultures is one of the great tragedies of human history. But if I lived in the colonies and I read this newspaper, and therefore thought that there was a good chance that my wife and my kids would be murdered in the streets as they went about their business in a place where they were born and raised, I'd take some kind of action first and worry about cultural sensitivity second, and so would you. One last note to mention. The Library of Congress has available on its website a very good map titled Cantonment of the Forces in North America, 11th October, 1765. It's a great map because it shows a few different sides of the issue. First, if you go pull up the map by means of a fancy schmancy Google search, you see very clearly this red line going down the map following the tip of the Appalachian Mountains and dividing the colonies in the east from lands on the west, which, according to the map, is, quote, lands reserved for the Indians. Of course, spread out over all this Indian land are British military units meant not just to safeguard the territory, but theoretically to enforce the proclamation. Look at the legend on the map, and you can see that each icon representing a unit of troops also indicates how many troops were there. Let me tell you, only someone wholly unfamiliar with America could look at that map and suggest that, for example, one small detachment of 123 officers and soldiers was going to police all of Virginia from the coast all the way inland to the Mississippi River. And therein lies the last problem the colonists had with this proclamation. If you're not actually looking at this map, it's important that I point out that it shows the borders of the various colonies, except that they don't look like the states do today. For example, take North Carolina. On the western border of North Carolina is Tennessee, except that on this map, Tennessee didn't exist yet, so North Carolina doesn't stop at the mountains. It just keeps going west. So do the other colonies as well. The reason for this is that the colonies were created when people just didn't know what the interior of the country looked like. So this territory as defined in their various colonial legislatures, granted to them by the government in London, in theory, continued westward until something stopped it. The colonists assumed that they would be stopped by the Pacific Ocean or another nation's borders like Spain. But instead, here's this proclamation, which sounds an awful lot like Darth Vader telling Lando Calrissian that he was altering the terms of the arrangement. In the context of colonial concerns over the relationship between Parliament and the local colonial legislatures, this was overreach by clueless British officials.
Now, that there is a lot to absorb about a document you probably never read or uh, heard much about before. If you haven't listened to the recording of the Proclamation of 1763, I invite you to do so now. If you have listened to it before these notes, I would invite you to do so again, bearing in mind this time how a colonist might feel reading it. Remember the condescension a colonist might detect in the text. Think of how you might feel if you've worked your whole life so you can acquire property for your children, and now some unelected official thousands of miles away just changed your plans for you. Or if you live near the proclamation line, think of how you might be concerned knowing that Pennsylvania and New Jersey were going through uh, what they were going through, and that your own government was, from where you stood, giving a safe haven to the people who had just burned your village down and destroyed your crops. Also remember one last thing. Despite what I said about how important the feelings of the colonists were, the more, most important thing I can tell you is this. Perception is not reality. Reality is, in fact, reality. And the reality is that there are only so many times you can poke a bear. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.